Dietrich Bonhoeffer has once said, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. And yet, in practice, every fiber of my being wants to be alone with my sin. I don't I want to hide it. If for some way it was to get out, I don't want you to say any word about it. And I certainly don't want to face a rebuke. You know, I know of no other passage that gets as universally revered in all of Scripture from both Christians and non-Christians than Jesus' words in Matthew 7, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Everybody loves that passage. And, you know, Jesus is right to target the hypocrite who condemns other people without acknowledging his own sin. You know, frankly, it's it's an ugly stain on the church that we sometimes get known as the people who point the finger at other people without acknowledging our own sin or being gracious to others. But I think mostly the modern appropriation of Jesus' words has to insist that sin is simply a private matter. We can talk in general terms, of course, about what sin is. And we can even say that, that one should repent. But honestly, we tend to leave it up to the individual to discern on their own how to respond to their sin. We pretend like sin itself is just a personal problem. That it's to be dealt with out of their own personal sense of morality. In isolation by the individual. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, that is exactly what sin wants. His line that I put at the beginning of your bulletin from his book, Life Together, says, sin wants to remain unknown. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. What he's getting at is really profound. For what he's saying here is that there's more to rebuke. There's more than than to giving a rebuke or hearing a rebuke from another person than strictly being judgmental. There's more to it than the gotcha moment where you're sneaking to to find out the secret faults in people and then expose them and take some sort of joy in that. There's more than just wanting to take somebody down a peg. What is the godly goal of rebuke? What's the purpose that God has for it? Well, we come to a passage that invites us to see confession of sin And even, yeah, rebuke in a whole new light. Something that's vital, something that's even healthy for a community. Now look, there's a lot of potential here for misunderstanding and for abuse. So let's slow down and let's ask God to pray. So join me now. Father, we come to your word uh, in a particularly uh, uncomfortable passage. 
And as we find your word to us in it, um, we pray that you'll give us soft hearts to hear it, an open mind to receive it, and a willingness to follow you through it, and most of all, to see Christ at the center of all of it. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, chapter 11 in the book of 2 Samuel has left off with David committing sin and seemingly untouched by any of the consequences. He's committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba. He has covered it up with the murder of her husband, Uriah. And then the, the chapter ends simply with David adding Bathsheba to what seems like a stable of other wives that David has. It's a classic tale of arrogance and entitlement, all that comes with, with power. I mean, who is going to accuse the king of a crime? And if somebody did accuse him, who's going to punish him? He's the king. He has all the power. He's in a dangerous moral position because he has assumed moral autonomy. He assumes that he can dictate the rights and wrongs in his own life. Who would challenge him? Who is going to correct him? He's governed by those own rules that he creates without fear of being checked. Now the thing we have to see here is that you don't have to be king for this to be your problem. I think in our day, this this utter desire to make sin something subjective has allowed our morality to skew this way, where we can become autonomous in our morality. We experience that same danger of isolation. All too often, we make moral decisions based upon not what is right or what is wrong, but will it affect somebody? Mostly, will it affect me? Will I get caught? What's the penalty? And perhaps then, maybe, is it even worth the penalty? No. Isolation is the problem. It was, danger- it was David's dangerous path that he had gone down. And in fact, frankly, it could have been the uh, de- most desperate path for Israel. As their king goes, so goes the nation. We will see this from king after king in Israel's story. And with nobody to check David, the nation itself could, could fall away from God's law. But chapter 12 comes. God will not let David alone. He won't let him alone in his isolation and in his arrogance. He sends Nathan the prophet. What does God want to do? Nathan brings a rebuke, but what's God's goal in this rebuke? I mean, let's be honest. When I think of the word rebuke, I really can only think of a couple of goals for it. One is to inflict suffering, to pay back, right? I mean, we see morality go askew, whether it's on the news with some politician or some celebrity, or perhaps we see some crime that happens, and it just boils our blood, and we want the rebuke hammer to fall. Somebody tell that person off. Because there's a sense of satisfaction, of justice that can happen through it. Or perhaps we want to see correction being done, behavior modification. The rebuke comes, 
because we want them never to do that again. And while I think we see, in some sense, both of those elements here in Nathan's rebuke, there is actually something more, something deeper. I want to suggest that the main purpose of God's rebuke to David here is actually personal. It involves reconciliation. It involves restoring David not just to some abstract law, not just to get him to be obedient, to in some say set him back to factory settings, you know. It involves reconciling him back to God. And that's exactly what David needed. How does God do this? Look at the very method that God uses to respond to David's sin. He sends somebody. He sends a person. Yes, a prophet to bring him the word. But think about the method he's using here. God didn't just zap it into David's brain. It didn't come in a, in a dream. It didn't come in a vision. God didn't just leave the Holy Spirit to convict David personally in isolation. He didn't leave it for David to feel it as he reads Torah by himself. He didn't allow David to just listen to some podcast somewhere and then feel, oh yes, I should probably repent of this. No, he needed to involve another person to bring God's word into his life. And that itself is a grace. You think about the grace of God sending a word into your life. You know, the flip of that is actually a sign of judgment. And whenever you think God's people are in trouble is when God not is angry and vocal, but when God is silent. Israel is at its most desperate moment when God's voice through the prophets stops. And it echoes what uh, Elie Wiesel has profoundly said. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. For God to be indifferent towards us is a scary thing. It's a sign of judgment whenever he says, and I let them, I handed them over to what they wanted to do and to be. Oh man, this is a grace. Chapter 12 is all full of grace. God intervening. He will stop David. And look at this method that he brings into David's life. He sends Nathan. And even the way Nathan presents this to David is grace. For he begins by bringing David a judicial case. Now, we know that Nathan's got another motive here. He's telling a parable with an edge to it. We know that he's there going to expose David through it. But, you know, David, it's not clear that he knows that this is a parable. I mean, David was the supreme judge of the land. He was getting cases all the time brought to him so that he could reflect on justice, on how to rule in righteousness. And so Nathan brings him this case, the case of a rich man who had everything, and that now he's entertaining this traveler. And instead of drawing upon all of his resources to feed this traveler, He goes to a poor man and takes his only possession, this one ewe lamb. Nathan ratchets up the guilt a little bit. It was the thing that the children played with and loved. And the rich man, who had all this stuff, the many herds and everything, takes the poor man's ewe 
and doesn't just take it, but slaughters it so this guy can have lunch. And David is, is furious. His blood starts to boil. And he starts going back into Scripture. Exodus 22 says, if a lamb is taken, and a lamb, and, and, and the, the intent of that is evil, not just stealing it, but stealing it to kill, then the man must repay fourfold the crime. David is exacting. He gets it. And he's right. He's righteous in his judgment and his anger. What a contrast from chapter 11. Sometimes we can say, well, how can he do that? How can he go and do such horrific things in chapter 11? Adultery and murder and lying and deceit and ugliness. And then right around, seemingly minutes later, know Torah so well that he can cite chapter and verse for the appropriate punishment. Yeah, but isn't that true in our lives? Isn't that true for you and me? And we can see very clearly the fine nuances of morality out there. We see it in the subtle inflection in somebody's voice. Oh, that person's arrogant. Or, oh, they're just so out of line there. We could summon all sorts of, you know, Bible passages we didn't even think we knew of saying how wrong that is. And then for us, in our own lives, when things are black and white morality, we say, well, yeah, but you have to know the circumstance. It gets really muddy when you're actually talking about yourself. It's true. It's true in my life. Left to ourselves, we can't understand morality, but we need that objective. Nathan presents the case of this man, and he uses that word, this man, four times, talking about this man. And then, then David, even in his judgment, says, yes, this man, he's wrong, and he deserves punishment. This man. It's all set up so that Nathan can just lower the boom. No. You are the man. You are the man. This is no abstract legal case. This is about you. Look at how important it is for Nathan to have approached David this way. David is now open up to hearing this message. If Nathan had come right at the very start and said, you're the man, you're guilty, what's David going to respond to? Okay, (laughs) I'm the king also, and please take this man away and have him executed. Perhaps. Perhaps being defensive. Talking about all the other circumstances that that were involved. Certainly, it it was a, a, a grace that Nathan is able to lead him to see abstractly what righteousness is in this case to understand it, and then to understand his own sin so that he is now ready to receive the message. But then look at this message that that unfolds as Nathan brings this this word of the Lord to David. It was interesting that that what God is going after here is not just David's behaviors. That's not the root problem. The problem is his isolation from God. David has tuned out God. And so in this speech of of, uh, Nathan, he must help David rediscover who God is. He needs to rediscover the very character of God. 
Let's look at some of the things he goes over here with David. First, he must rediscover that God is personal. God is personal. And so that means that David's sin is personal. God's law isn't just some abstract set of rules that if you veer off a little bit, God's going to zap you and then correct you. You know, he's not like the parking authority in New Haven, right? You know, go over and meet it for one minute, and all of a sudden, boom, there's a ticket. Automatic, cold, calculated. No offense to parking meter people if you're out there. But there's a sense in which that judgment comes calculated on a standard. And that's how we might feel that God responds to us. But that's not God, and that's not God's law. Listen to how God's law is expressed in verses 9 and 10 as Nathan brings this to to David. He said, when you committed adultery, you despised the word of of the Lord. And that word despised, that's charged. That's charged with relational language. And then the next verse, God says very clearly, when you took the wife of Uriah, you despised me. You despised me. Sin is relational. Sin, and and beyond even just relational to others, all sin is relational to God. That is why David, in that great confession in Psalm 51 that's based off of this interaction, can pray, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. That doesn't denigrate the sin against Uriah or Bathsheba, but it highlights the fact that sin is personal. It's not just behaviors. It's not just giving in to an urge here or or going after a pleasure here. Sin is an act of contempt toward God. And that's why it wasn't enough just to simply correct David's behavior. If he just became a good boy after this and did everything he was supposed to, it would have been a desperate situation because he would have been far from the Lord, going off on his own way. That brings us to the second thing that David needs to see. First, he needed to remember that God is personal, but not only that, he needs to see that God is good. And that God is not just good abstractly, but he's been good to David. See, David, in his sin, had forgotten all of God's graciousness. And so Nathan recounts it right from the start. Verse 7, I provided you. I anointed you as king. I, I, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you everything that you wanted. Well, you know, on one hand, that can sound like a, a, a parent dealing with a whiny kid. You know, do you know how long I've suffered over this hot stove to prepare a meal for you? Do you know how many sacrifices I made and how much I care for you? You know, that ratchets up the guilt. But that's not what God is after here. God's not trying to lay a guilt trip on David. You know, he's trying to expose that David, all this while, has been operating with a faulty view of God. He's believed that God has been stingy and withholding. And that if he wanted anything from God, he'd have to take it on his own. That's, David, that's been David's view of God. And it would have, you know, if David was deprived, or if he was poor, or if he was desperate, you know, that wouldn't excuse the sin, but maybe we'd understand it a little bit. 
But for David to take Bathsheba when he had already had multiple wives, for David to cover it up with murder when he was basically the law of the land, when when David was to take and take and take, when he had everything, just shows you how egregious this sin was. It was senseless. He should have been completely satisfied. But that's a familiar trap, isn't it? It's one I get stuck in. Build a narrative that just focuses on all the ways that God has deprived me. I don't have this. I don't have that. All of us do that. I don't have the relationship that I want. I don't have the job that I want. Or perhaps you're in the opposite problem. I have the relationship I want, but I don't have the freedom that I want. I got the job that I want. I can't stand the stress that it's providing. I want this material possession. I'm sick of these material possessions and the burdens they cause. It doesn't matter which side you're on. There's always something that's driving us to look after the other thing. And when we focus on the things that we don't have, it warps our view of God. We get the sense that he is the one that's denied me. He and his great providence is withholding all these good things from me. And so then I need to act independent of him so that I can get the things that I need for life and happiness. Well, that's, that's where our heart goes. We need to get out of ourselves. We need to get out of ourselves and actually see how much we have. The thankfulness is not easy. Thanksgiving is a spiritual discipline, and it needs concentration. It is hard. It's hard to do by yourself. You have to work at it, because your heart is going to constantly drift to not the things that you have, but the things that you lack. But man, I've noticed in my life, the times that doubt has come in, the times that I get discouraged, it's those times that I'm the least thankful. And I start to start to, to think about where God has brought me from, and all the things he's provided, and all those things that are clearly from his hand, and not the things that I've tried to orchestrate. Well, then all of a sudden I say, wow, he really does love me. All of a sudden, my discontentment just starts to to ease. All of a sudden, an extended time of thanksgiving makes God all the more real. I, I know him. He's personal to me now. And of course, it's not just material blessings. We can go there very easily, but, but spiritual blessings. For, for a Christian, you should say, as, as Paul does in Ephesians, that God has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's given us a new life. He's given us a new identity. He's given us new satisfaction that will fill our souls. And it's the ugly lie of those sins that say, I'm not satisfied with what he has, and I must seek it elsewhere. And that type of logic, what this passage is pointing out, is saying, you know, really? You are the rich man. You are the rich man. You keep going after the lamb. You keep going after these other things. You've taken your eye on the multiple blessings. The storehouse is filled with riches that you have. 
God goes on. It's not only that he has given them all things. Verse 8 says, and God says, and if this were too little, I would have added much more. There was no need for David to to find life outside of what God was going to provide. He would fulfill him with anything. There's no need in your life to find satisfaction outside of him. Romans 8, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Man, if we lived like that promise was a reality in our life, it would transform our contentment and our thanksgiving. David needed to see that God is personal. He needed to see that God is good. And then finally, he needed to see that his sin is ugly and it has a cost. That God is just and that the consequences of his sin, they're ugly. And sin doesn't just disappear. It's not just a a payment that you can make and, and move on with the rest of your life. It stays. This is what is part of this prophetic word. In some way, what Nathan is showing David in the repercussions of his sin is that the sin that he committed has now just given birth and has committed and has, has created other sins. It's replicated and intensified. David slept with another woman. Now his wives will be slept with. In fact, it will be his, his son that will sleep with his concubines in broad daylight for all to see. It's not just that he steals and kills from Uriah a penalty that would be fourfold retribution. David is now going to to uh, to take on that fourfold retribution as four of his sons will die in his lifetime. The infant son here in this passage, and then Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah, they're all going to die. All David's sons, all four of those sons dying in David's lifetime as they try to take the throne from him. The sword is not going to depart from his house. See, this isn't a punishment, per se. I mean, David experiences grace. He is redeemed. But what God does is expose him to the ugliness of the sin. He has to taste it. God never just downplays sin. That's not what grace is. It's not a downplaying of sin. Many times we can experience the penalty for it. Experience the, 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 um, the effects of it. In fact, sometimes being spared the evil effects of it is actually a way to harden us to our sin. God opens David up. He opens him up through this rebuke. And then we can see here, finally, the goal that God had all along. For the goal is not simply correction. The goal isn't simply to punish David. The goal here that God has in this rebuke is reconciling him to himself. How can we tell that? We can tell that by the result. Look at how changed David is. David, at the end of this passage, is transformed. First, we see that the rebuke changes David's view of himself. David now is free to admit that he is a sinner. He can be open to this fact, no longer trying to keep up a facade that he is the righteous king that he is flawless. No, now, through this rebuke, he can admit his faults. He can admit the sin that's in his life. 
And so often when we feel like the person rebuking us is not out for our good, our reaction is going to be to fight conflict with conflict. If you start pointing out things in my life, I'm going to start pointing out things in your life. If you come at me, I'm going to get defensive. Man, it's amazing. David here opens himself up. Takes down the wall of self-protection. And he says to the prophet Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And that moment of vulnerability and humility is the turning point for David. It's the turning point for all of us. And that brings us from what the, the, the point of death and darkness to life. Because it's at that very point of vulnerability that Nathan can bring the word of the Lord, the gospel. Nathan says in verse 13, or God, David says to, to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord, and almost immediately, Nathan's response, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, the mask he wears comes down. And now he can receive the good news. Now at last, he could see that he was the man. And that transforms him in his relationship with himself. He understands himself to be a sinner. But it also now transforms the way he sees other people. And think about that infant son. The, the infant son in chapter 11 was the problem. It was the sign that he was guilty. And in fact, almost everything that David did in chapter 11 was to try to get rid of that son, to pawn him off on Uriah. Let's pretend it was Uriah's son, so I wouldn't have to deal with it. But now, once David gets off of himself, can understand that he no longer is in this image-cleansing type of persona, what does he do to his son? He weeps and prays for him. With all his might, he wants the child to live. He fasts and he prays. He takes the concern off of himself and he begins to plead for this boy. And that fervent prayer leads to another way that David's changed. He changed, of course, in his relationship with God. God told him in verse 14 that the child would die. So why does David now spend all this energy and all this fasting so that the child would live? He prays because he knows now that God is a God of grace. And if God's a God of grace, then he now lives in a world filled with possibilities. The world is different. If he himself could be a sinner and stand before a righteous God and find forgiveness, then anything is possible. And so he goes and prays. And when he gets challenged about his prayer, he says, basically... Look, when the child was alive, I thought, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will even be gracious here. He was gracious there. Who knows? Everything is on the table now with a gracious God. The whole world is open to optimism. Because we have a God that loves us. Once David knows who this God is and how he relates to him, he is transformed. And look, even when the prayer is answered in the negative, and the child dies, David is still transformed. He is no longer the same man. He rose, washed, and goes to worship this God, that isolated and 
and autonomous David has died. It's not that the death of that son didn't grieve him, but to see how he moves forward in the world now with courage and faith, he goes back to Bathsheba, lies with her, and has another child. What does that take? Man, that takes a belief that God is not just going to continue the punishment and zap him down again. He's transformed his view of God. He can now have a child and name him Solomon, derived from having peace with God. And he can even receive the name for his son Jedidiah, loved of God. That's the fruit of what God was intending in David's life. It's the, the godly fruit of a rebuke. And so the question then becomes clear for us, for each one of us. Are you open to rebuke? Do you have a place in your life for someone outside of yourself to bring in a word of God? Look, it requires more than just a disposition to humility. It requires you to leave the safety and security of your isolation. Do you have people in your life that can speak the word of God to you? I mean more than just people you can vent to. I mean, they are pretty easy to get. I hope you have some of those people in your life. But the person that that is there that you can always rely on, that you can vent to, is honestly not doing you a whole lot of good. They can take your perspective. They can take your side. But do you have somebody that can come into your life and bring God's truth to areas of sin and blindness. Yeah, clearly this is God's word that Nathan is bringing. But man, David used a human voice to do it. He he brings in Nathan. Do you have those type of relationships? What are you doing to get them into your life? You know, if you've been involved in, in some of the discipleship groups, you know, and the, the sonship course brings out this uh, crazy question. It asks you to go to somebody that you trust and ask the question, what would you do, what, or what can I do in my life to change one thing? What's one thing in, in my life I could change? Man, think about that question. That is a scary, terrifying question to ask somebody. What's one thing in my life that you would change about me, essentially? But it's a great question for anyone who wants to take their sins seriously. Do you know what it takes to ask a question like that? It takes a desire for God to work in your life. But it also takes a trusted brother or sister in Christ who loves you enough to bring the scalpel of God's word into your life. Look, I, I know, I really believe and, and, and affirm that we have a wonderful community here that's, that's accepting and loving in many ways and welcoming. If you are new here and haven't gotten to know this community, I mean, stick around. It doesn't matter what background you have come from. It doesn't matter what baggage you bring. This community is going to love you. And that's a wonderful thing. But how can we be a community that loves even deeper than that? 
Can we ever get to be a community that rebukes out of a deep desire to love and lead each other to Christ? I need that in my life. I know it. Because when I get that relationship, well, then I can hear God's word to me, even through a human voice, exposing sin and challenging me on it. But if we can also hear God's voice then, then I can also hear God's voice in the absolution. The same voice that exposes my sin can bring God's voice to say, and yes, you are forgiven. No longer left on my own, in my own head, to try to answer that question. You know, that's what we need to truly become the body of Christ to each other, loving and caring and participating in the gospel. It's the vision that we need as we come to this meal. And it isn't wonderful that we come to this meal not as individuals. It's not something that we take and, and depart from here and eat by ourselves, but something that we do as a community. Let's prepare ourselves now to come to this table together.